First Kings chapter seven. First Kings chapter seven. Nope, seventeen, not seven. I lied. Get that right. First Kings chapter seventeen. Last week we kicked off this uh, this series in this this book. Uh, well, actually, I guess that was two weeks ago. Last week we met Elijah. Uh, we were introduced to our hero, the hero of the story. We saw him confront the wicked king Ahab. And now, this week, we get to see what happens next. So we, we meet Elijah. We meet Elijah uh, showing up and, and really just kind of going up, confronting Ahab, not scared of anything. Uh, and, and, and so my question for you would be, what do you expect to happen after that? After a, a, a prophet shows up to a king and says... Here's what's going to happen. There's going to be a drought. There's going to be punishment. And then we kind of stopped. And so the question is, what happens next? And I'm going to guess it's not, it's it's probably not how you would have written the story. If you were writing this as a, as a television show, episode one is Elijah showing up, doing the big confrontation. Episode two is, it's probably not going to be what is in first Kings. It's not the way I would have written the script anyway. Uh, but before we get there, I, I, I want to take just a second to acknowledge kind of the odd reality uh, of being a, a pastor and kind of how my, my week has, has gone. So sometimes what's going on in the world, sometimes things that are happening in the world uh, is of no consequence to what we do here on Sunday mornings, to what I do here on Sunday mornings. Uh, and honestly, this is a bit of just like me personally kind of kind of peeling back the, the veil a little bit, let you see my process and kind of how some of this works. But uh, oftentimes, it, it, it doesn't have a whole lot to do with what we do here on Sunday mornings because I'm preaching the Bible. And the Bible is true independent of the world events and what's happening around the world. Uh, and so uh, it, 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 as much as the world deems so much important that happens around us, the reality is so much of what happens around us is really pretty trivial. Uh, and it shouldn't have much of an impact on what we do here on Sunday mornings. But there's other times where what's going on uh, in the world make my job just a little bit easier up here. It gives me focus. It gives me clarity. Uh, it, it maybe even gives me a way to connect the scriptures with, with you and with my own heart, my own life. Um, today may work that way a little bit. I don't know. We'll, we'll see where the Spirit leads. But uh, I'll be honest, sometimes, sometimes what's going on in the world makes what I do up here really difficult for me. Um, fortunately, this hasn't happened a lot, but it has happened. And I'll be honest, this week was, was different because as I prepare this message, as I prepare my heart, uh, and, and my mind this week was constantly torn between the text and what we needed to talk about and what was here and what was just happening in the world, what all was going on. It was a heavy week for me. Now, maybe for you guys, it didn't hit you the same way. I don't know. I don't know how you guys are feeling this, but watching the news, watching what's happening, watching people standing up and saying, you know what, I'm going to say goodbye to my wife and my kids and send them to the border, but I'm going back to fight and to die that, for all intents and purposes. Like, that's a heavy thing for me to watch and to see. Uh, and it's been, it's been heavy. Abby is a, uh, a freshman in in high school, and, and she spent some time this week thinking through some stuff, and she's, she's been concerned. I think one of the days at school, I can't remember what day it was, but she came home, and clearly she was freaked out just a little bit. Uh, she was, she was 
kind of kind of messed up. She didn't say it, but she was asking some hard questions for me. She's watching things happening in the world and things that are going on, and she's never seen things like this, never quite understood uh, how these things happen or how these things work. She starts asking me questions like, what do we do in case of an earthquake? And what do we do in case of a nuclear bomb? And what do we do in case of the Great Depression? And I'm like, I didn't live through any of those things. I don't know. Uh, I don't have experience there. I've been through like a minor earthquake once, but I was asleep. So like, I, I don't have experience on what to do in those things. Uh, uh, but, but I did spend the first decade or so of my life in the Cold War. So maybe I have a little bit that I can draw on from that and that I can, uh, I can, I can throw out there for her. So I tried to calm her and ease her troubled uh, mind. And, and, you know, I, I laugh a little about that when I realized how sadly, honestly, normal some of this stuff felt. Um, how some of this stuff, watching this stuff, especially, you know, kind of the, the, the 80s flashback on some of this stuff, some of it just felt like, all right, well, we'll get Rocky out and we'll do this. Like, it, it, that's kind of what it, what it felt like just a little bit for me. And I kind of laughed at that, but then it struck me that it wasn't normal for her, that this was all kind of new territory for her. And I have no desire to go back to those days of the Cold War. And, and, and those thoughts have kind of been bouncing around in my head all week. And it went from something that I kind of thought was a little bit funny to something that I kind of thought was like, man, this is terrible. Let's not, let's not go back there. And so it's just been a heavy week as I have prepared this message. And I wish like anything, I had a light, funny, chipper message for you guys this morning that I could kind of pep you all up and to give you this morning, but I just don't think it was in me this week. Like, I just don't think it was, I just don't think it was, was there. But I do think God has a hopeful message for us this morning, and one that we can, we can chew on, and one that will provide, I think, some measure of comfort, and some measure of, of, of kind of like sustenance for our lives, something we can really kind of sink our teeth into and say, this gives me hope, and this will get me, this will get me through some of this stuff. So, with all that, let's kind of get into it here. First Kings chapter 17. Let's reread the first couple of verses from last week's text and then, uh, and then see what immediately follows and see if that's how you would have written the script. So First Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And then the word of the Lord came to him. So this is so he's come up, he's confronted Ahab, he said it's not going to rain, there's going to be a drought. Here's what's coming. And then he says, "Depart from here." God says to, to Elijah, "Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there." So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. I don't know about you, but that is an anticlimactic scene for me. I mean, he's just confronted the king. He's just pronounced a judgment upon Israel and upon the king, this evil king. And, and you expect this big kind of like clash, this big confrontation. And really all you get is, you get nothing. Nothing happens. 
God tells him to go away, go somewhere else. God sends Elijah away. He sends him out. To, he doesn't just send him away like, go back home, Elijah, you've done your duty, story over. He sends him to a valley, a little ravine that by its very name means cut off. And so it, it, it's, a, it's an out-of-the-way place. And he says, go to this out-of-the-way place and do this thing that I, I'm going to lay out for you here. Go there and be cut off. So Elijah does exactly what he's supposed to do. And what does God give him as a reward? He cuts him off from everybody else. He sends him away out to everyone else to a place with no food, no city, no people. Really, with nothing. Sends him out there and says, you go out there. And I wonder if that strikes you as odd. I wonder if that strikes you as a strange thing. Here's a guy who simply did what he's supposed to do, and now he seems to have gotten absolutely no reward for it. He's gotten nothing for it. He's done exactly what he's supposed to do, and then God has cut him off from all of society. This is one of those things in the Christian life that we don't say out loud, but almost every one of us implicitly believes in some measure. Like we, we feel it to be true uh, in our bones. We do good, God rewards us appropriately. We do good things, God comes through on the backside of that and rewards us kind of in proportion with what we've done. Not in proportion with our faith, but in proportion with the good deed that we have done. We do good because we think it means God owes us something good back. But that is not at all how Christianity works. Now, we've reduced it to that. We've created that kind of equation, but that is not how our faith and how Christianity works. Obedience to God does not grant us ticker tape parades, pats on the back, and award ceremonies. Now, we all want those things for ourselves, and we may throw our own little parades for ourselves, but... But obedience to God doesn't get that for us. Elijah's obedience earned him absolutely nothing but the chance to go hide out in the middle of nowhere for a while. Not only to go hide out in the middle of nowhere for a while, but to go hide out and to be utterly dependent on something outside of himself to even exist. This will become a theme for him. This is something we will see come up a couple of different times. But faithfulness does not always equal prosperity. That is not an equation that we are given in our faith. Look at what Elijah does here. He's all alone. He is undergoing the repercussions for his prophecy the same as everyone else. So he comes and he pronounces this prophecy, this judgment on Israel. And then he goes, he struggles to get food. The brook that he drinks out of, it dries up. He is under the same curse, the same judgment, even though he's done the right thing. He's done the good thing, but he's still under the same judgment as everybody else. What, what kind of system is that? How does that, how does that function for us? Just because we've done it the right way doesn't mean that we're going to see results in our life the way that we want. And I'm telling you this because so many of us have it programmed into us that if we are just good enough, if we live our lives just good enough, then our lives will be as good as we are. Or maybe I should say it this way. Our lives will be as good as the curve that we base our lives on, right? Because we all judge on a curve. 
We all judge ourselves on a curve. None of us takes just the straight, the straight grade that we get. It's, it's, okay, well, this is my grade, but compared to everybody else, I'm, I'm a little bit up here, so my life should be a little bit up here too. And we, we, don't, we don't judge on a flat. We, we want the curve, and we think that our life should mirror that grade on the curve, that God will repay us for what we have given him, and that when we live in that way, we fundamentally misunderstand the kingdom of God and how God has set up this this our faith in the kingdom of god to work but for almost every one of us almost almost without exception even those of us that are aware of this truth like we we slip into this almost without even without even knowing it thinking god how could you let this happen to me i go to church on sunday mornings I sit there and I listen to that preacher talk all the time. I I raise my hands on Sunday morning. That's got to count for something. I'm doing better than a lot of other people. I gave money. I did this. I I went and helped this person. I went and did those things. My life should, should reflect how good I am. God, you should be doing that for us. And it happens in ways that we don't even realize it's happening. But God does not, our, our faith is not a transactional faith. God does not work on a transactional basis with us, at least not that kind of a transaction. Where we give, he gives back in that measure. You give this, he gives that. This is what the Pharisees believed, and this is even what Jesus' disciples believed. I want you to read this lesson that Jesus gives his disciples because I think it gives us a good framework for the rest of our story this morning. So keep your your finger in 1 Kings because we'll be back there. But you can turn to John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, Jesus is walking with his disciples, talking with his disciples, and they they come up on on a blind man. And this is where we get this lesson. John chapter 9, verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? You see, they had a transactional uh, understanding of the grace of God and the work of God. And if this guy is suffering under some measure, then there must have been something that he is being punished for. So the transaction is, bad thing uh, was done by him or his parents, suffering comes. It's a a, a one-for-one transaction there. Who did what? They're not even questioning why is he suffering. The question is, who did what? Because we know this is why he is suffering. And Jesus answered, and it just completely changes the calculus here. He says, it was not that that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And I just wonder what his disciples did right there. Like, they were sure of the transaction. Like, they were sure of the math problem. They knew they had the math right. They just, they just had to solve for X. And they could, they could do it. Like, that's all they had to do. And then Jesus is, like, talking about something completely different. Like, they think that they've got the number, they just, need to, they just need to be able to plug it in, and they're good. And Jesus is like, yeah, but that's not at all how this works. And I just wonder, because it's, it completely changes their paradigm, completely changes the way in which they view things. And I, I just I wonder if they were like, oh, man, we got that one wrong. Or if they just kind of looked at each other like, what is he talking about? I'm lost here. I think that's probably what it was. I think that probably happened more than we realized, where the disciples were like, 
I'm not tracking, but okay. Um, so he says this, and he says, Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus changes how this works. He says, look, this is not about who did what in order for him to get here. It's about the kingdom. It's about the kingdom of God and maximizing the kingdom of God. This is not God's payback for sinful life. This is not tit for tat. This is not how it works. God is always at work in the bigger picture in ways that we, 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 we can't see. It's like uh, the, the analogy that I always like to use. It's like we're in the maze but God is, is not just over the maze where he can see all the different things. God is the maze maker, right? He's the one that created the puzzle. He knows exactly how it works. He's not befuddled by it at all. We're confused. We're like, I thought we'd go right, but maybe we go left. And so we're, we're a little bit confused by it. But he's not confused at all. He says, this is how it works. And you're saying, well, I don't, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I don't. That's not how I understood this to work. And Jesus is saying, well, you understood it incorrectly. Because your calculus is based on a very small thing that you can see, and you try to fit it into this equation. But that is not how it works at all. Instead, what you've got to see is it's all about the kingdom. And there's a whole lot more that goes into the kingdom than just your small little equation that you've boiled everything down to. God is always at work for the bigger picture and trying to tell the bigger story. For Jesus, the blind man was merely a chance to show the goodness of God and the work of the kingdom. No transaction there. The blind man didn't give anything to Jesus in order to get back. He was simply there to be the recipient of grace. No give in order to get. Do you understand what I'm saying whenever I say transactional there, right? Are you you tracking with me on that? Transactional and giving, receiving, and how it's just kind of a one-for-one or pretty close to that. That's not how that works. And so it works with your life too. This next story, I think, will will illustrate everything that I've just warned you about. But I'm going to warn you, as we read through the story and I make some of these points, it's going to sound like I'm contradicting everything I just said, all right? So just hang with me as we get through this, because it's going to sound like I'm contradicting myself, but I I promise we'll get to the other side of this, and I'll show you how this works just a little bit. So let's let's dig in a little bit more. Uh, And and I'll give you a heads up heading into this story, too. We're going to read about a widow that Elijah comes across. Our temptation, whenever we read the scriptures, is that we make ourselves the hero in the story, and we say, how am I like Elijah? You are not Elijah here. You're the widow. All right, so hang with me as we go through this one, all right? 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, came to Elijah. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. And behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he got to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and he said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. So Elijah makes his way over to this little town. 
This little town, the main thing you need to know about it is, one, it's completely out of the way. It's nothing important. It's a town that's completely forgotten, but it's also not part of Israel. It's not, she is a, she is a Gentile. She is not part of the covenant family. She's not part of God's chosen people. He makes it over there. And this town, though, has been affected by this same drought that has come on God's people, just as Elijah had predicted. And he comes up on this woman, and she is not doing great. She is literally gathering sticks to, pre- to prepare a meal and then die. She is preparing her final, her, 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 her final meal for her and for her son. That's her plan. Tiny bite of food left, a swig or two of water, and then she's done. That is the plan. Enter Elijah, who so far seems like a good enough guy. We don't know much about him. We don't know anything about him before 17. We know that he goes to Ahab, but he shows up, and this woman who's dying of thirst and starvation, he comes up to her and he says, woman, bring me a drink. That's how he, how he approaches her, which is he kind of a jerk. Kind of a jerk move there by, uh, by Allergia. Entitled jerk in spades. He doesn't stop there, though. He keeps going. He says, while you're at it, bring me a cookie. Bring me some food. So bring me something to drink and bring me uh, a cookie. And then he says, oh, that's all you've got. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, oh, that's all you've got. I'm sorry. I didn't mean, I didn't realize you were in such dire straits. I didn't know that this was bad. No, he says, oh, that's all you've got. I'll take it. Sounds good to me. Bring that to me. Now, this woman is no fool. She knows that she and her son are about to die. She's reserved herself to that. She's not even fighting against that at this, at this point. But if Elijah, this guy that she's never met, a foreigner who does not worship the same God that, that she almost certainly does, if this guy shows up and takes what's left, that means death is just that much quicker for her. And she's really not keen on that. She doesn't want that to happen. So that's, that's the framework, right? That's how uh, this, th- th- this works. But there's another part of this at play. But above the, 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 the dire framework of a woman who's about to die because she's not had any food, is that somehow God has communicated to this non-Jewish woman that she was to provide for Elijah. And that she should do it whenever he showed up asking for it. Now we don't know how that happened. But God did communicate. It says, the Lord says, go there because there's a, there's a woman there that I have commanded to feed you. So we don't know how he communicated with her, non-Jewish woman, but he did. So when Elijah shows up, she's actually trying her best to do exactly what Yahweh has commanded of her. But she's confused. She's confused. She says, I'd love to feed you, Elijah, but this is honestly all I have. I'm not lying. As surely as your God, not her God, Your God, Yahweh, lives. I don't have anything else. I've just got a little bit in these jars. I'd love to feed you, but really this is all. And Elijah says, I'll take it. At least that's sort of what he says. So let's keep reading. So 1 Kings 17, verse 13. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said. But first make make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. 
and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So Elijah says, if you'll just give me this final bite, this last little morsel, this last little bit that you have, you'll be fine. Trust me. Trust me, you will be okay. Now remember, not a Jewish woman that has the tales of God's faithfulness to rely on in her past. She doesn't know about the the exodus out of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles and all the things that God has done. She doesn't have those stories to rely on. She doesn't have those things. The patriarchs are not in her past. If she's going to trust God on this one, She's going to have to base it on one thing and one thing alone because Elijah said it would happen. That's the only thing she's got to go on. But she does it. She trusts God. And God sees fit to provide for her, her son, and Elijah for the entire period of the drought. The jars never run out, ever. Miraculously, God provides. Now here's the lesson from this widow. There's, there's two things for us to take. We'll, we'll take the first one. Here's the lesson to learn from this widow. All God wants of you is everything that you have. That's all he asks. But all God promises in return is everything that you need. All God wants of you is everything that you have, and all God promises in return is everything that you need. And I promise you, that trade will rarely look good to anyone. Everyone that you talk to will say, uh, that seems like a bad idea. I'm not sure that you really should be doing that. I'm not sure that you want to do that. I'm not sure that that is a good idea for you. It rarely looks like a good trade. And it rarely will feel like a good trade for you. But listen to me, ultimately, it will always be worth it. This is the parable that Jesus tells us, right? This is the parable that Jesus gives to us. Is a man finds a treasure buried in a field, and he sells everything he has to go and buy the field. And I guarantee you that guy looked like a lunatic to his friends. I guarantee you that guy was told he's crazy. But what he's doing is wise. What he's doing is smart. What he's doing is the right thing even though everybody tells him that he is crazy. Go sell it all because what you get in return will come back in spades. Again, this is how God works. We talked this week, we talked this week uh, in, our, in our discipleship group. The, the question came up uh, regarding a statement that I had made last week about, about not to be a, a balanced person, a statement that I make every now and then about not being a balanced person. God doesn't want us to be balanced people. He wants everything we have. He then will, will, will set the rest of our priorities Once we give him everything, the rest of our life will be clarified and our priorities will be set forward based on the way that we live our lives when we give everything to him. So that's completely out of balance. The priorities will be determined based on us giving everything over to him. And you say, hang on, hang on, hang on just a second. All right, I'm tracking with that. That's fine. I understand. Give God everything. He gives us what we need. 
doesn't look good, but in the end, I promise it'll be worth it. All right, I'm tracking with all of that, but hang on. That sounds awful transactional to me. That sounds like a transaction. And you just said God doesn't work on transactions. I thought you said that's not the terms that we, that we do this. So how do we hold these things together? How can that be true? How can what happened to Elijah being sent away and being cut off and what happens to this widow whenever she gives everything, having her needs met, how can those things hold together? And that's a really good question. So I'm glad that you asked. Um, but you, you have to operate with both of these narratives according to the principles of the the kingdom not our own little kingdoms but the larger kingdom that is that is so so i want you to see what is happening here i want you to follow with me what's going on here god could have chosen anyone and frankly any way for elijah to be blessed he could have done it in any ways i mean he did it in the first part of our story right The ravens brought him food. The ravens brought him bread. And he was totally dependent upon those ravens. He could have said, Elijah, go and just let the the ravens feed you for three years. You'll be bored. You'll be lonely. You'll be all by yourself. But it it, it will be provision for you and you will get through that. Why not just have the ravens keep doing it? Why not have some other wildlife come and provide for him? Why not just have manna and quail like, like, uh, like they did when they came out of Egypt? Why not do something like that? God could have done that. But instead, he sends Elijah to a person. And not just any person. A Gentile. And not just any Gentile. A woman. And not just a woman. A widow. For a hundred reasons, this woman should not have been providing for this Jewish prophet. There's nothing under there that should have happened this way. And there's nothing legally uh, uh, obliging for Elijah to then uh, do the same and to be able to provide for her. Yet here we are. Elijah provides for her and she provides for him. It is a foretaste of what God wants to do. Even as the kingdom of Israel splits in two, as exile approaches, as sin ravages God's people, God is telling a story of how he will use his word to bless the nations. How he will use his people to bless the nations. Don't miss this. Jesus even points this out in Luke chapter 4. You can turn there if you want or come up. Luke chapter 4, verse 25. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. The reason Jesus points this out, the reason that he's talking about this in the context of Luke chapter, chapter 4, going, going out of his way, is he is saying God very specifically chose a non-Jewish woman for this moment. In a way that the ravens don't communicate, he chose a non-Jewish woman for this moment. Why? Because he was looking for someone to bless outside of Israel. And as Jesus quotes this, the same, he's, he's saying this is the same thing that he has come to do as well. He's, he's reading to the, 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 the Pharisees and to the teachers in the, in the temple, and he's telling them, I've come to do the same thing that Elijah came to do. 
to bless those even outside. He says, God uses... This is the calculus that I'm talking about. This is how it works and how you have to shift your mindset a little bit. God uses a Gentile to provide for his people, to humble them. But in response to their faithfulness, he provides for them. Jesus says, I've come to provide in the same kind of way. I've come to provide for Gentiles in the same way that Elijah provided for this widow. He came to the Jews, but the Jews rejected him. Luke chapter 13, verse 34, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus comes to his people. His people reject him, and he says, I will give my blessing to those that are not Israel, just like Elijah did. So does Jesus abandon Israel in their unfaithfulness? No. But he does not limit his grace to them either. So it is with this widow. In fact, if you keep reading, we're not going to talk about all of this, but if you keep reading, you see that he, he even uses Elijah to raise her son from the dead when he dies unexpectedly. So does this, does this sound familiar? Raising someone from the dead, blessing them in this way, God provides in bread and in resurrection for this widow? In bread and in resurrection for this widow? For those that are not even part of this covenant promise? Friends, this is what Jesus has done for us. It isn't just that God has been good and provided for us because we did something for him. No, he sought us out. He looked for us. He came for us. Just like Elijah came for the widow, Jesus came for us. Even though we are not Jewish. Even though we are not part of that, uh, that, that covenant family of who God has chosen, He comes for us in the person of Jesus. He, thought, he sought us out. This is why we are the widow. Because we are just like her. We are on the verge of death. He says, I have come for you. I am the bread of life. My body is broken for you. Take and eat. To the widow, he says, take and eat. To us, he says, take and eat. We come with humble, desperate, dying hearts, and we desperately need an intervention lest we die. This is what God sought out and orchestrated start to finish. We simply respond in faith, same as what the widow did. You see, this is not just a simple transaction. Before the widow can even exercise faith, God had to seek her out. Before the widow can exercise faith, God had to, had to, to, to work the miracle. Before God could do any of, or before the, she could do any of those things, God had to be there and send Elijah for her. So it is with us. We, left on our own, would be hopeless but he sends Jesus for us. That is not transactional. That is gracious and merciful. And he sustains us through Christ. 
This morning, I hope you find hope in that promise. I hope it sustains you. Now, I, I don't have like a, like a super practical thing to lay out here for you. But honestly, I, I think that the way that it works is that we give all that we have. Their priorities flow from that, how all of that works together. The most practical thing that I can tell you is that God came for you this morning. He sought you out. And if you respond in faith, the same as the widow, he will provide for you. And he will provide for you in your ultimate need. And that is salvation through Christ. I hope this morning you, you sense the desperation of the need. Do you sense the desperation of the need in the widow? It goes by it pretty quick. But she says, I'm, I'm fixing a meal so I can die. I have no hope. I wonder how many of you guys have made it to that place. Or maybe if you still think, you know what? I've got a few more transactions up my sleeve. I'm not, I'm not at that place yet. I think I can still barter with God. I'm telling you, you'll get to that place. And there's hope for you. And you don't grope for it and strain for it. He will find you. That is the hope of the gospel. That's what we celebrate this morning. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up and we're going to sing. And then I'll come back up and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the Lord's Supper and, and, and tie some of this together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace this morning. Thank you for the example of the widow who, who gave all that she had in complete trust of you whose faith became action to, to, in, in order to be able to provide for Elijah. But Father, I pray most of all, I, I thank you most of all for the example that we have. That you sought her out to teach us this morning that we too have been sought out in Christ. Father, help us not to miss the depth of the grace that you have shown us. Help us to trust you fully and to honestly believe that if we give all we have, you will give all that we need. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.